Good morning. I remember the first time speaking with Damon about a, a sermon idea that I had that compared love and control as opposite means of living in the world, and I said, this issue seems so big, I could probably preach every one of my limited sermons that I'll preach in my life and deal somehow with this issue. That's probably true, but I hope I can give it a rest after this one, since it's starting to look a little bit like I'm really preaching to myself and I should have gotten the message by now. But when Damon was discussing the Old Testament view of idols in his series about blessing, it struck me as another way of looking at that issue, one that explores the contrast between relationships ruled by control and those governed by love. Just as a review, the first sermon I gave was about Acts 7, which was the story of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Stephen was asked to defend himself against reports that he had blasphemed Moses in the temple, but instead of offering a defense of his actions, he just starts recounting the major themes of the Jewish story. It was less a defense and more of a narrative that suggested that the Jewish leaders needed to go back to the beginning because they had it wrong on every level. And indeed, they did have it all wrong. For them, the temple had become a means of control. They believed that they had the favor of the Lord precisely because they had the law and controlled the temple. They had hoped to use both to subdue and rule over the Gentiles. The idea that they had been called from the time of Abraham to be a blessing to the nations and a witness to the God of love was almost completely absent from their thinking. Despite their continuing unfaithfulness, God had shown them mercy and as the ultimate act of love had sent his son to call them back to their original course. But the law and temple had become merely a means of control and power and so they completely missed their long-awaited Messiah. God's ultimate act of love to make his image bearers into temples themselves in which he promised to dwell through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit had no appeal since it meant losing control of the means of power that is the temple and the law in exchange for becoming servants to God's means of grace to all the nations and to the Gentiles. In the second part, second sermon, I focused on the contrast between chaos and control in the modern world. Our goal is is always to master our surroundings and reorder creation to our satisfaction. That's the the goal of life under the sun. In contrast, God has purposed to redeem creation from the very beginning. Reordering is an act of control designed to kind of make the best of what's probably a mess and in in the uh, meanwhile kind of exploit it if, if you can. But God's redeeming of creation is purely an act of love since the goal of that redemption involves perfect relationship and a righting of all wrongs. In the Trinity, we see the perfect expression of love, which, as Jonathan Wilson put it in um, his book, God's Good World, is continuous and complete. It's receiving and giving back, continuously, constantly receiving, giving, receiving, giving. This is opposed to the natural death-oriented order of the fallen world, which is taking and keeping. I don't think it's possible to really overstate the difference between those two ways of looking at the world and how unique God's way of giving, receiving and giving back uh, stands against everything that we see uh, in the world. In Trinity, God shows us perfect unity and perfect individuality, both of which are made complete in, the, in that constant giving and receiving. There's nothing that the Father holds back from the Son, as we see in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Likewise, as we see in John 17.31, Jesus entered into humanity to bring us, to a certain measure at least, 
into that perfect relationship that he enjoys with the Father. There is nothing the Son keeps from the Spirit and nothing that the Holy Spirit holds back from the Father or Son. It's a perfect unity of giving and receiving. And it is the very source of life. In it we find uh, perfect individuality and yet a complete recognition and giving to other that really is love. When there's no holding back or keeping, there can be no control. And at that point, love is the only possible description of the relationship that exists. Um, Things look a little different for us down here, though, um, because under the sun, as the author of Ecclesiastes might say, uh, we live in a fallen world. And though we long for control and a way to make God into our image, that's our natural tendency, we see an example in the book of Job that confounds that possibility. Ultimately, in Job's story, we see that we cannot know God in a way that allows us to control him, either through cursing him and dying, as Job's wife suggests, or painting him into a predictable force that doles out justice as we see fit, as Job's so-called friends suggested. In the end, Job submits to God's mystery while his friends are condemned for assuming they could use what little they knew of God's nature to rule over him or control others and ultimately control God. They would make God into an idol if they were able. Which is what brings me to today's uh, sermon. Today I'd like to conclude this series by looking at how idols in the ancient world exist as examples of control, in total contrast to Yahweh, who revealed himself as the agent of love. Secondly, why it's sometimes a little challenging to see the parallels between the idols of the ancient world and the idols we face today, and how God's grace, as we experience it in Trinitarian love, and through prayer, is the key to overcoming that tension of living in a control-oriented modern world. In 2 Corinthians, Paul asks, What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Bilal? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. We see throughout the scriptures that Yahweh's claims about his nature are radically different from every other pagan conception of the gods. The pantheons of gods throughout the ancient world, Greece, Rome, and, and before that, were more like powerful humans who suffered the same failings, greed, and blindness that their followers did. The only draw of the small g gods of those pantheons was their superhuman power. The ultimate goal of the mortal being to manipulate that power to his advantage. Love in either direction doesn't enter into it at all, nor does holiness. All of these pantheons are filled with beings that are actually more enslaved to their passions than the mortals who worship them. In contrast, the God of Abraham's call, sorry, in contrast, the God of Abraham's call to his people was to recognize God's perfect holiness and to act in accordance with that holiness in justice and love. A couple of weeks ago, while preaching on the book of Ruth, uh, Damon went into a bit of detail about what went on in the, the high places. Um, the Ash, Asherah, a female fertility goddess, was worshipped in various ways, including through ritual sex. Although she, believed, she was believed to be Baal's mother, she was also his mistress. The pagan cultures who lived near Israel practiced sympathetic magic to influence Asherah and, and Baal. Baal, Baal. <laughs> That is, they believed they could influence the gods' actions by performing a representation of what they wished the gods to do for them. And believing that the union of Baal and Asherah produced fertility, the worshippers engaged in sexual acts to cause the gods to join together, ensuring good harvests. 
Now, while it might appear that the pagan gods were more powerful than their followers, in some sense at least, that power was only relative, and it needed to be prodded into service by the people who were their followers or worshippers. So for the Moabites, there's no loving Baal who protects and provides for his people as an act of grace. He doesn't withhold his blessing as a warning about injustice among his people or within the land. Love and justice justice are characteristics of Yahweh. Baal, on the other hand, must be pushed. He must be bribed and preferably controlled into giving away his power. There is no room for love or mystery. Failure to cajole Baal correctly resulted in like a complete societal disaster. No crops and um, the whole downfall of society. In contrast, Israel... For Israel, creation was a gift given by a loving creator whose goodness and justice are mirrored in that creation's fruitfulness. As Job saw, there's still a great deal of mystery and and we might not always know exactly why difficult or even disastrous events overtake us. But in the end, Yahweh is perfect in justice, love, truth, and every form of goodness, and he will care for his people. He can't be controlled or cornered by human understanding, as Job's friends thought but he has called instead his people to obedience and love. So it's not too difficult to see the relationship between control and the ancient pagans' use of idols. But how do we make the jump to calling things like money, wealth, and power in any similar sense of the word idols? After all, we don't use those things in the same way the idols were used to try to manipulate and control pagan gods. Our sexual misdeeds are not meant to demonstrate fertility to some, to some god. Is the reference to idolatry in the modern world really just a mere metaphor for the things that take our attention? I think, I think a word study is helpful in starting to answer that question. When we hear the word disenchanted, what comes to mind? Is it basically a synonym for disillusioned or disappointed or maybe even unhappy? I think those are the words we find in the dictionary and in common usage disenchanted can mean that. But I think the word has much more significant meaning and and one truer to its origins when it refers to the world as no longer being enchanted or alive with transcendence. Um, We've stripped the world of of anything above it, so we have the physical and we have what we would call the spiritual or the other elements that that they're no longer joined together. The project of disenchantment which is now referred to as modernity, began about 500 years ago, and it's really the defining characteristic of our scientific age. Even for theologically conservative Christians, it can be a challenge to view God as always sovereign and working in every element within creation. After all, we know the mechanics of reproduction on the cellular level, and that droughts usually happen in cycles, and how rain gets in the clouds, and all the different details of of, uh, modern scientific knowledge. And so a more mechanical view of the world has replaced the view of the world as gift and pushed out the notion of creation as an act of God's love. So we don't need to perform perform fertility acts before Asherah or Baal to increase our crop yield. We just need to know the right way to use inorganic fertilizer and how to optimally program the watering cycles on crop sprinklers. The benefits of modernity can be a blessing, but the challenges are sometimes like a wall that sits in front of us that's so large and endless We don't even actually see that there's a wall there. The cause of our disenchantment, at least the way I use the term, is modern scientific understanding. And as I mentioned in my previous sermon, science brings many blessings, and I'm not opposed to 
modernity in, in principle. I'm just cautious of its tendency to consume every other contender for truth. It's because, for most of the modern world, science is basically a more reliable form of magic. It's a magic that we can use to get what we want. God is a bystander, or at best, absent clockwinder, who set it all up and now just kind of lets it roll down. We know how things work, and we can ex- exhibit control that was unimaginable to ancient cultures. Which brings me to the focus of my second point. Our idols are different because we are, in our modern state, more powerful than all of the pagan gods. Scientific understanding, though actually a gift of, God, of the God who loves, makes us feel as though we are the gods. After all, Baal was just a creature that was to some degree more powerful than his followers and who could manipulate nature. Certainly we fall into that category of more powerful than ancient peoples and able to manipulate our surroundings. Why bother with carved images when we can go straight to the thing we want? Our idols are more like first order means of control. No need for having to try to trick a fickle pagan god who's really only the middleman anyway. We can use our idols to move much more effectively in controlling our surroundings and circumstances to get what we want. Now, I love indoor plumbing. I love how Advil can take away my back pain. I love iPhones and the conveniences of modern living. But I need to be aware of the idolatry towards which such power tempts me and of the way that the desire to control nature itself is remarkably similar to the practices of the ancient pagans. Amidst all of this ancient and modern idolatry, we see in contrast the Trinitarian God of Scripture whose defining characteristic is love. And love is the opposite of control. Sometimes um, we think of hate as the opposite of love, but I think a better case could be made that control is the opposite of love. God's love is administered through grace. And most of the time... When I think about the word grace, I think of it in terms of the context of grace versus works. That's an important discussion, but it's also important to move beyond that into understanding how God's grace acts as the antidote to living in the modern taking and keeping paradigm of the world that we live in, and how that grace moves us towards receiving and giving, which is life. For Paul, who lived among the idolatry of both Israel and Rome, teaching about grace and the God who acted in love was like sailing into a hurricane. In Philippians, Paul spends the entire third chapter and more driving home how radically the church must reorient its thinking towards grace. And in Acts 22, we see the Jewish crowd to whom he is speaking turn absolutely riotous at the mention of God extending his grace to the Gentiles. Even though we heard not a peep from that crowd as he previously explained his conversion and how Jesus was the Christ. So for them, extending grace and love to the the Gentiles was more controversial than claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. It's pretty amazing. But the Israelites had abandoned the call to Abraham to be a blessing to the nation through God's love. Instead, they saw the temple and the law, as I spoke of in my first sermon, as a means of power and control. For them, it had become an idol as dark as any pagan god. As followers of Christ, we face similar temptations. It's much easier for me to pray idolatrously than in true response to God's love. Of my own initiative, I would turn God into Baal by trying to manipulate him in my prayers. I might even be able to use selfless, godly-sounding Christianese language in the process. But in fact, aside from God's intervention, that's the only way I would be able to pray. But God has intervened. Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer as a reflection of God's loving character and a guard against idolatrous prayer that seeks to control. 
that entire prayer is really the definition of love. And as an act of God's grace, we as followers of Christ are already drawn into an intimate prayer life uh, through the Holy Spirit's intervention. In the Lord's Prayer, we find in Matthew 6, we can call God our Creator, Father. And though only He is perfect, we, even as vessels of clay, can address God as the Creator, personally, as His children whom He loves. We enter into His renewing of creation as we ask for God's will to be done here and now, as well as eternally. And as God cares for us with our large and small needs, like daily bread, He redeems His creation by allowing us to forgive as we've been forgiven, and to be delivered from evil, eventually from temptations of every kind, and to participate actively and yet somehow still within his complete sovereignty. It is truly an amazing, unequaled prayer and relationship. Just as importantly, the Holy Spirit directly intervenes, moving us towards God's will, an appreciation of God's glory, his goodness, and, his cons- and also gives us a concern for our brothers. As we are drawn into this way of approaching God, works and grace or at least our working as responding participant, come together. The Holy Spirit really is directing, yet we really are praying. God really is sovereign. Our requests really do matter, and Jesus really is interceding for us. And through that process, we see concrete reasons for thankfulness that don't just involve getting what we want. The greatest gift of prayer is a relationship centered in love. When relationship is properly seen as the root of blessing, the trappings of modernity have less power as idols and can take their rightful place as secondary comforts, even gifts of grace from a, liv- from a loving God. There could not be a greater contrast between that kind of thankful love-centered relationship and the mute, silent, blind idols of the ancient and modern world that must be controlled so that their followers can take and keep. One final note about different but related side of idolatry in the modern world. It's interesting that when we have a great, perhaps unhealthy love for some performer, person, or thing, or particular talent, we say we idolize them. I, I think we've all experienced that. I know I experienced that feeling recently when I saw um, Into the Woods, which is based on a play by Stephen Sondheim, a musical by Stephen Sondheim. He wrote lyrics and music to it. And it's a drawing together of all these various fairy tales in a really amazing way. Honestly, I couldn't conceive of a human being having the talent needed to create that combination of words and music. And I walked out of that theater thinking how amazing it was. And my desire was to tell him how in awe I am of that work of art. That desire even bordered on idolatry for me and could almost be considered a form of worship. Now, that, of course, is not a morally sound way to think, but it has great power, I think, for instruction when we're trying to grasp how we are to approach approach the God of love and what makes worshiping that God so different from control that is the cornerstone of ancient and modern idols. When this idolizing happens, it's because we see something so amazing, so beautiful, so unique that we praise it to the point of worship. Directing it towards another human being idolatrously is wrong, but it should at least clue us into the pleasure that comes from recognizing true worth and goodness and responding and of responding in joyous thanksgiving. The obvious and true corrective is to redirect that praise towards the God who created all things, including, what, including that person and the talent that they've been give, gifted. And maybe less obviously, 
to thank God that he has made us image bearers and worthy of participating in those kinds of transcending gifts, gifts like music, love, joy. But just as importantly, I think, we should also understand that the most honorable part of that desire to praise is a reaction of giving back after we have received. We've received blessing um, through another person from God. And praise, I think, is the, the best part of that desire to give back. In a perfect world, that is the world that God is redeeming this one into, we could perfectly receive such gifts as signs of God's love and give back praise to God in right measure and in right measure to the talent-bearing brothers who, who uh, show us that talent. And I think that is our great hope as Christians, that someday, when all things are made right, we will be able to perfectly see and praise the God of love from whom all of those good things come. But in our fallen state, such pureness of motives is not fully possible. Even the outline of that possibility, though, stands as a testimony to the difference between the small-g gods of control and the god of love. We can recognize that the excitement for praising something good is an act of love that finds its origin and its true end in the loving, giving nature of the triune God. In grace, God has given us all that we have, and we come close to our true calling as his beloved children when we can take that excitement into our worship and worship the one who loves and is worthy of all honor and glory. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that we can come together as a body because you love us and because you have given us love. We can love you back and in some measure join into the joy and complete perfection of your Trinitarian being. Thank you that you have deemed us worthy of, of revealing that gift and that you have called us back into right relationship by your initiative through your Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask that each day as we're tempted with opportunities for control, power, manipulation, and taking, that we would instead live into the example that you've shown us in Trinity, thinking of giving back in all that we receive. We thank you for this time that we can spend together and ask that you would watch over us this week and bless us in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name.